Well, God bless you, and happy Sunday. Psalm number 62 in the Word of God. Here are a few notes by word and way of introduction. Some of the most cuddly and famous animals in the world are now considered to be endangered species. The tricolored giant panda native to China has a population of less than 2,500 of these precious animals remaining in the wild. Likewise, fewer than 6,500 snow leopards are known to exist. And last but not least, fewer than 60,000 orangutans dwell in the jungles of Borneo and other parts of Southeast Asia. Poaching, deforestation, disease, predators, lack of food, and unknown factors all contribute to the decline and extinction of many of the world's most noteworthy creatures. But some of these rare and threatened animals are far less known, like the endangered Bracken Bat Cave Meshweaver, which stopped a $15 million highway construction project in northwestern San Antonio, Texas in the year 2012. This spider, which is listed as an endangered species, had not been seen for three decades and was thought to be extinct. And when we find ourselves discouraged, depressed, or threatened, we can feel like we ourselves are an endangered species. And that is the way David felt in this 62nd Psalm. Notice with me the third verse. The Bible says, David says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? David says in this third verse that his enemies were doing everything in their power to topple him over and destroy him like a broken down wall or fence. They desired to break him down and to mow him over. But in the face of these hostile attacks, David does not fret himself over his enemies, but rather he trusts in God. The most profound truth in this psalm is that while David is in danger, in spite of that danger, he exhibits a faith which pulsates with strength, serenity, and cool confidence towards God. The venerable Bible commentator, Mr. H.C. Leupold, wrote, quote, there is scarcely another psalm that reveals such an absolute and undisturbed peace in which confidence in God is so completely unshaken and in which assurance has, is so strong that not even one single petition is voiced throughout the psalm. Now, let me break it down this way. This is an end quote. David really doesn't ask God to do much of anything in this psalm. David simply declares who God is in many ways over and over again. There's no lament. There's no petition asking God to give or do anything, really. But it's just a declaration. It is a statement of faith. I have two simple points this morning. Number one, God, David, and the enemies. God, David, and the enemies. 
And point number two, simply put, is two lessons about God in verses 11 and 12. Point number one is God, David, and the enemies. And point number two is two lessons about God in verses 11 through 12. Everybody ready? Say amen. amen. All right. Now, one of the things I try to do, whether or not that I mention it to you or not, I'm hoping that as I go along, folks will just begin to pick things up on their own. But this is a segue where I can sort of insert a comment. When you go to study and to read and to absorb and to look at the Word of God, the Bible, in your quiet time, one of the most important features of personal Bible study is when you're looking at a passage, this is what makes the Psalms so precious, is that each Psalm, while they're connected to a greater part in the book of Psalms, each Psalm really stands on its own. And if you're looking at any passage or any book of the Bible, one of the things that you look for is often repeated words or phrases. You remember, if God says something one time, it's eternally true. But if God chooses to repeat things on multiple occasions, that will tell you that God is laying a particular stress and emphases to what he's saying. Now, how does that principle of Bible study, looking for often repeated words and phrases, how does that apply to the 62nd Psalm? Well, let me show you. No less than four times, and I've only chosen these four examples for the sake of teaching this morning, but no less than four times you have similar phraseology occurring. Notice in verses 1, 2, 5, and 6, what is the often repeated phrase that David uses? Maybe you can find it on your own. He said in verse 1, for God alone. Then he said in verse 2, he, personal pronoun referring to God, only. It's the same Hebrew word. So the word for only and the same word for alone are the same word in Hebrew. They're just translated differently. Don't ask me why the translators do that. There's many reasons. But then notice also in verse number 5, for God alone. And then again in verse number 6, he only. And so here you have four occurrences in eight verses, and there's actually a little bit more than that. I'm going to show you that in a minute. But there's four occurrences in eight verses where David identifies that the subject, the final resting place of his faith, is in God alone, God only. Somebody says, check, I got that. But I don't know that we do. We're going to talk about that this morning. This is important because while David, while the final resting place of David's faith is in the person of God only, notice in the sixth or in the uh, fourth verse, what do the wicked, what do the enemies desire to do? They only have one plan alone. And what is that? 
This is what's called a pun in the Hebrew language. Look at verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Salah. This is important because while David's final resting place of faith is on the firm foundation, the rock of ages, the immovable mountain of God himself, what characterizes the wicked is that their faith, what they only have is their schemes and their plots and their wicked and their evil ways. David says that the singular focal point of his trust is in God alone and nothing or no one else. David says he does not trust God and David says he trusts God, period. I have actually heard in my life in ministry people say something like, we're going to trust God and. We're going to trust God and do this. We're going to trust God and do that. That's fine, but you have to nuance that properly. Because the 62nd Psalm says, the way to have lasting victory over your threatening enemies Whatever form your enemies take on, remember, who are our great enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. No matter what form your great enemies take on, your faith must be in God alone. This is why situations with the young boys are so important for us to take note of. Because here you are. And from day to day, the prognosis of these doctors changes, doesn't it? I mean, one boy's heart rate is up and it's looking well. They're going to bring him down off of the ventilator. And the next day, he's through the floor, but the other brother is doing very well. And the doctors are sort of nail-biting on the edge of their seat. And what this tells me is that while doctors can be helpful, they are not God. And the final and fullest resting place of our faith is in God alone, period. Not God and, not God but, but God alone. And over and over in this psalm, David makes this point. And this is very important because it is David's boldness and his confidence which arises out of a trust, a dependence, and a faith that is placed upon God alone. Notice the illustration that David gives for God. In verse 2, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Here's how it works. You cannot trust the things of this world. You cannot put your trust in God and someone or God and something because those things are movable. God is the immovable force. God is immutable. Write that down. Immutable means unchanging. That's a fancy way of saying unchanging. God remains the same. God never changes. God's purposes never change. One of the great blessings of studying the Old Testament with a keen eye upon the promises and the covenants that God made. God makes a covenant and a promise with Eve. God makes a covenant and a promise with Noah. 
God makes a covenant and a promise with Abraham. God makes a covenant and promise with Moses. God makes a covenant and promise with David. When you look at the promises of God made to these various men at various stages in their lives, all the covenants of God are are different elements and further developments of the same thing. What is God doing? God is redeeming humanity. What is God doing? God is saving the world from itself. And the promise that God made to Eve and to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David, all of those promises and covenants which God made, God never changes. Even when his own people fail to keep their end of the covenant, and they always do, just like you and I, God says, I'm going to keep my promises that I have made to you, not because of you, but because of my own self. And in that, we learn something about the character of God. What do we learn about the character of God? God is immutable. God is unchanging. And this is what David is talking about. The unchangeability. There's a new word for you. We have a new word every week, I guess. But there's a new word. The unchangeability of God. The immutability of God. He is unchanging and he never falters. He never faults in his promises to his, to his people. Alexander McLaren, the great Bible teacher, commentator, says, quote, That one word alone is the record of conflict and the trophy of victory. End quote. I want to give you a little word about a great book written by Pastor John MacArthur. The book is entitled, Our Sufficiency in Christ. Pastor John MacArthur, in his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, criticizes many of the modern methods of church growth and ministry. He asserts today's Christians trust in mystical experiences, methods, and tools, rather than fully depending upon Christ for direction, help, and wholeness. In my ministry as a pastor, Joel Sharp Jr., I have found that Christians in our day are far more apt to trust in worldly resources and mechanisms instead of placing their full dependence in Christ alone. We're not saying that doctors, sciences, and so on and so forth do not have their proper place because they most certainly do. But what we are saying is if we call ourselves believers, if we're Christians, and we believe that our God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, then you ought to think that we could trust Christ for our wholeness. But very often we don't. We're going, to get, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Why can't we seem to rely on God alone for things? Here's a great question. Someone might say, well, aren't we supposed to meet people where they are? That's a real good pastoral phrase. Meeting folk where they are. Aren't we supposed to meet folks where they are? And if the people want to be entertained, then don't you have to provide entertainment for them in order for them to listen? So here's the great conundrum of being a Bible teacher and preacher. People want something. 
And if we're to meet people where they are, and we're supposed to do that, then aren't we supposed to give them what they want? Because if we give them what they want, then by recourse, what that means is they'll listen. There's two answers to that question. Number one, yes, we must begin where people are. Most certainly. Absolutely. Moreover, people must be trained in order to properly listen to Bible teaching. I know this may come as a shocker, but it's the truth. Not only do we need to be trained in Scripture, we must be trained in how to listen and hear Scripture. We must start with the ABCs. And as we start with the ABCs, then we can move on to the one, two, threes and everything that comes after that, i.e. deeper spiritual truths. So yes, in one sense, we do meet people where they are. But knowing that people need to be trained in how to listen to the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to hear from God. But secondly, here is the real problem that we face. This is the crux. This is the core. This is the root. Now, in my yard, me and Mr. Berkshire, we have a running joke. And Dick will come and see me, and I'll say, Mr. Berkshire, have you mowed your dandelions yet? And he'll say, yep, got them mowed. He'll say, what about you? And I'll say, yep, I mowed my crabgrass. Mowed the weeds this week. And you know, the funny thing is, about mowing weeds and about mowing dandelions, about mowing crabgrass, when you chop weeds off at the surface, what happens to them? They come right back. What we don't, listen, the worst thing that we can do, and this is why so much Bible teaching and preaching falls flat on its face, because we're not getting down to the root cause we're chopping off weeds at the surface. And what happens when you chop weeds off at the surface? They grow back. Somebody says, well, it's, it's, well, praise God, it's November. The weeds are gone. That's all right. Just wait till March. They're coming back. It's like a bad sequel. You know? What we need is to get down to the real problem. And what we are facing is a crisis of faith. A lack of genuine biblical understanding. Two things. Number one, you meet Christians who don't rely on the Bible at all. Or number two, you meet Christians who think they do, but they don't really know how to do that. A crisis of faith. What we are facing is a fundamental disbelief and unbelief in the power of God's Word to touch and transform the lives of human beings. And when we fundamentally disbelieve, unbelieve God's Word and God's ability to touch people through His Word and only His Word, what we then do is we resort to Christianized parlor tricks. Baptized, 
parlor tricks. And now it becomes whatever we've got to do to meet people where they are. Maybe we'll get surveys and we'll go out in the community and find out what unbelievers are looking for in church. And then that's what we'll give them. Do you know that that is the modern church growth method? Go and give surveys to everybody in the community and ask them what they want. And now the church is supposed to give them that. I can tell you this much. I thank God that God did not give me what I wanted. God gave me what I needed. You say, Brother Joel, what did you want? Can I just be honest with you? I wanted another hit of dope. God didn't give that to me. God gave me the truth. God gave me his word. God gave me the spirit of God and the truth of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. That's not what I wanted, but I can tell you this much, that's what I needed. What do people need? They need the cross. They need the Christ of the cross. They need the word of God. That's what David had. David had faith in not God and, not God but, but God alone. And this was the source and the secret of his powerful faith and confidence in his God. This is how you have in the middle of all these psalms one that is generally positive. Psalm 62. How do I navigate the rough waters of life threatened by my many enemies on all sides? Faith, trust in God alone. Beware of pragmatism. I like to give you big words to make you think that I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> you laugh. Beware of pragmatism. What is pragmatism? Pragmatism is the notion that meaning or worth is determined by practical consequences. It is closely akin to utilitarianism. The belief that usefulness is the standard of which is good. To a pragmatist, if a technique or course of action has the desired effect, it is good. If it doesn't seem to work, it must be wrong. So what is pragmatism? Pragmatism says if it works, it's good. Sounds good so far, right? Let's keep reading. Pragmatism as a philosophy was developed and popularized at the end of the last century by philosopher William James, along with other noted intellectuals as John Dewey. It was James who gave the new philosophy its name and shape. In 1907, he published a collection of lectures entitled Pragmatism, a new name for some old ways of thinking, and thus defined a whole new approach to truth and life. Pragmatism has roots in Darwinism and secular humanism. It is inherently relativistic, rejecting the notion of absolute right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error. Pragmatism ultimately defines truth as that which is useful, meaningful, helpful. Ideas that don't seem workable or relevant are rejected as false. This is what we think. Well... It's working, therefore it must be good. That's pragmatism. That's not good. I'm going to show you why. Because <laughs> not everything that works is good. 
So says the Bible. What's wrong with pragmatism? Well, not all pragmatism is bad after all. For example, if your car breaks down, you work on it or you go get it fixed. That's pragmatism. If the roof leaks, repair it. That's pragmatic. It's practical. But when pragmatism is used to make judgments about right and wrong, or when it becomes a guiding philosophy of life and ministry, it inevitably clashes with Scripture. Spiritual and biblical truth is not determined by testing what works, quote-unquote, and what doesn't. We know from Scripture, for example, that the gospel often does not produce a positive response. So if you follow pragmatism to its logical end, and we say if it's good, it, if it works, it's good, and if it doesn't work, it's bad, what do you do with the gospel? Because far more people are going to say no to Christ than will say yes to him. Therefore, the gospel must not be good enough. And this is very dangerous thinking. If we just use the Bible, well, just the Bible doesn't work. We need the Bible and. We need the Bible but. That's not what David says. He says God alone. How do you get God alone? By the Bible alone. Sola fide, sola gratia, solas Christas, sola scriptura, soli de gloria. You say, oh, he's speaking in tongues. <laughs> yes, I am. It's another language. It's Latin. It means by faith alone, by grace alone, through the scriptures alone, through Christ alone, to God be the glory alone. Did you know that those five solas, the onlys, the alones, did you know that those five solas changed the course of human history? That is the mantra of the Protestant Reformation. Of which you and I are all products this morning, whether you know it or believe it or not. <laughs> On the other hand, satanic lies and deception can be quite effective. So let's apply pragmatism now to the lies and deceptions of Satan. He's got far more people on his side than we have on ours. So therefore, what Satan's doing must be good because it works. <laughs> Wrong answer. What works is what God says. And where does God say? In the Bible. I know this may come as a shocker, but it's the truth. Is the Bible good enough? Absolutely. No, the Bible is not good enough. The Bible is infinitely more than good enough. The Bible is just not good enough. It's more than good enough. Majority reaction is no test of validity. Here's your scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1, 22, 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. These are examples where the gospel does not produce a positive response. On the other hand, 
Satanic lies and deception produce positive responses. Matthew chapter 24, 23, verse 24, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. Majority reaction is no test of validity. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And prosperity is no measure of truthfulness. Job 12 and verse 6. Now, pragmatism as a guiding philosophy of Christian ministry is fundamentally wrong. Everything I just read to you, I got from Pastor John MacArthur's website. Grace to you. Once there was a man who was a rather rotund old chap. He was heavy on his feet. His family took him out for a boat ride on the lake. As they came back to the dock, the rope which connected the boat to the dock was not tight and it slipped loose. As the big man began to exit the boat with one foot on the dock and the other still in the boat, the small ship began to pull away. Without stable footing, the big man fell into the lake. You say, what in the world has that got to do with Psalm 62? Everything. Because if you've got one foot in the boat that's pulling away from the stability of the dock, and you've got one foot on the dock, you better be real swift on your feet or you're taking a bath whether you want to or not. The same is true about the Bible. When we try to put our trust in God and something or someone else, we are like the big man who falls in the lake because we have one foot on the foundation and the other foot upon something which is unstable. For many of today's believers, Jesus is really not sufficient for all things, regardless of what they may profess publicly or privately. The great Bible commentator of yesteryear, Mr. John Trapp, T-R-A-P-P, says, quote, They trust not God at all, who trust not in Him alone. Think about that. They trust not God at all, they who do not trust God alone. What a powerful statement. Is the Bible good enough for us? It's a good question. Verse 2 is so important. Because he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. It's important because the contrast is in God who cannot be shaken. The way that we come to know God who cannot be shaken is through his Bible, through his word, through scripture. Two lessons about God in verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. You're going to think I'm real nerdy now. Don't worry, you probably already do. 
This is something called numerical parallelism in ancient Hebrew poetry. And what this is, is it is numbers that are being employed in poetry for emphasis. What is the heightened, concentrated emphasis of David in these last two verses of Psalm 62? Two things. Number one, God is strong. And number two, God is loving. I don't mention these things so you can think I'm smart. I'm mentioning these things so you can know how complex the Bible is and how carefully we must handle the Word of God. I can tell you this much. When the fires of persecution begin to burn in the United States, and they surely will burn, there will be no one or nothing that can sustain you during those times except for the Word of God. If you study the testimony of the great sages and martyrs and patriots of the Christian church, the last words on their lips was Scripture. And what that tells me is that the Bible is sufficient. Not only is it sufficient, it's more than sufficient. Did you know that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth? Did you know that the Bible is God-breathed? Do we really believe that the Bible is the breath of Almighty God? Because if we did, we would consult it more. If we did, we would cherish it, God's Word, more. Two things about God, heightened emphasis, parallelism, numerical parallelism. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, the power belongs to God and that to you, O God, belongs steadfast love. It's all part of the same thought. The stanza is the same. And what this means is, is that David has his eyes on two things about God. Namely, God's power and God's love. Listen to this. We should be rejoicing in God alone like David did because of these two great attributes of God. If God had power but lacked love, he would not have the heart to save humanity from their sins. Think about that. If God had only power and no love, he could save humanity. He just wouldn't care. <laughs> but if God had love and no power, he would want to save humanity, but would be unable to do so. So God has not one, but two key attributes that can save David from his enemies, which desire to mow him down like a tottering wall, like a leaning fence. And it's God's power and it's God's love. This is why we need to wait upon God alone. In verse number 7, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Wait on God alone. Trust in God alone. Because it's only God who can protect us from our wild enemies. God is an immovable mountain an impregnable fortress. 
And the way that you find out that God is an immovable mountain and an impregnable fortress able to, live, to deliver you from your enemies is through the Bible. Would be to God that we would love God through and in his word more. Let's pray. We're not going to have an invitation this morning. We're just going to have a brief moment of reflection. Our fathers, we prepare for the Lord's Supper table this Lord's Day morning. Lord, let us cherish your revelation of your word to us. Lord, let us treat your word like it is a hid treasure, like it's silver and gold and diamonds and rubies and precious. Let us chase after you through your word. God, help us to love your word more. Speak to your people, I pray, dear God, and to me. I need it worse than they do. I need your word, Father, to penetrate my heart and my life and change me like it has so many times. Continue that work, O oh God. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.